You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So, Arizona Governor Jan Brewer, she looked at the writing on the wall, she looked at the NFL threatening for a second time in just a couple of decades to move the Super Bowl out of Arizona because of the haters and the bigots there in the state legislature and the government. Uh, She looked at Apple and tons of big businesses and companies saying veto this bill. Of course, the bill I'm talking about is a bill we talked about at the top of the show last week, the turn away the gay bill that would have made it legal in Arizona for someone to discriminate against someone else for any reason at any time if that someone who is doing the discriminating – mentioned that they were discriminating because of some amorphous, vaguely defined, sincerely held religious belief. Now, some have asked why you know this law didn't specifically single out LGBT people. It didn't specifically single out the gay, so why the turn away the gay label applied to it. Well, it couldn't specifically single out the gay because of Rummer v. Evans, which is a Supreme Court decision from the early 90s, which overturned an anti-gay law in Colorado that specifically singled out gay people for discrimination – And the Supreme Court in one of its first major pro-LGBT civil equality decisions ruled that a state cannot declare a class of people a stranger to its laws. Colorado tried the specific anti-gay, okay, discriminate against the gay people law and the Supreme Court said, and I quote, this Colorado cannot do. And that Supreme Court decision left Arizona and all these other states that are floating these anti-gay quote-unquote religious liberty bills in the position of having to word them so broadly that they apply to everybody. So although the intent is to discriminate against gay people, the letter of the law doesn't allow for that. The letter of the law has to allow for discrimination against one and all by one and all and thereby lies chaos. And this is settled law in this country as somebody pointed out on TV and I'm quoting you and I don't remember who you were. So quotes to you, props to you, whoever you were. This is settled We have decided that in the provision of public accommodations, you may not discriminate against the public. When you open a business to the public, you are opening your business to all comers, to all members of the public. Ironically, of course, having just said that, it is legal to discriminate against gay people and lesbian people and bi people and trans people in Arizona. Legal right now. Legal after Jan Brewer's veto. Legal before they floated this law. It is perfectly legal in Arizona to fire someone for being gay, to refuse to serve someone in your business because they're lesbian, to evict someone because they're trans. LGBT people have no civil rights protections in Arizona. So this law was unnecessary. All of this sturm and drang, all of this bullshit, all this celebrating about the veto and we are where? We are nowhere. Nothing's changed in Arizona. It was legal for a baker to refuse to bake a cake for a gay couple Two weeks ago and it's legal for a baker to refuse to bake a cake for a gay couple now. And yet all the mewling from the right about, oh, the religious liberties of these poor bakers who just want to bake cakes but not for you. What can be done for them, for the poor darlings? Well, I have a suggestion. I have a suggestion for all the Haiti butt-sore anti-gay bakers in Arizona. You all, y'all need to start an organization. The Arizona Association of Homophobic Bakers, I believe the URL is still available. 
publicly identify yourselves as homophobic bakers. Put up a website, list the bakeries in Arizona and everywhere else that don't want to do business with LGBT people and put signs in the windows of your bakeries that clearly state that gay and lesbian customers are not welcome and will be turned away. Discriminating against LGBT people, perfectly legal in Arizona. So you homophobic bakers, you will run no risk, no legal risks, identifying yourselves as haters and bigots. You can't be sued by the individual gay people you discriminated against and the authorities can't find you or shut you down. You don't want to serve gay customers. Great. Let us know who you are. Put up a list online. Hang signs in your windows and we will take our business elsewhere. The homophobic bakers of Arizona, of course, will do no such thing because the hater bakers know that putting a we don't serve gay people sign in their window will not only cost them our business – business they don't want, but also the business of our straight friends, straight family members, and straight neighbors, business they do want. And they'll also lose the business of fair-minded straight people who think discrimination is wrong, and they'll lose the business of straight people who worry about where all this selective, hypocritical, faith-rationalized discrimination could ultimately lead us. So they're not going to do it. But it seems to me that if homophobic bakers don't have the courage to put up the list, if they don't have the courage of their own sincerely held, faith-based, bigoted convictions, LGBT activists in Arizona should put that list up for them. How many bakeries are there in Arizona? Can't be more than a few hundred. Get a group of people together for a couple of days. Call all the bakeries in the state. Find out who doesn't want our business. Post the list online. Then encourage LGBT people and our friends, family members, and neighbors to consult that handy list of hater bakers before ordering wedding or birthday cakes or muffins or whatever the fuck else. That's not the way, of course, the homophobic bakers of Arizona or anywhere else want it to work or the homophobic florists or photographers or caterers for that matter. They want to quietly and discreetly refuse to serve individual customers who happen to be gay without their other customers ever finding out. They want to hate on the down low because they know that customers who may not be gay themselves, people who know and love LGBT people, customers who don't approve of discrimination on principle, other minorities who worry that they could be next, those folks will take their business elsewhere too. There's a tremendous amount of sympathy right now. A lot of crocodile tears being shed on right-wing blogs, on the internet, by Ross Douthat and the New York Times. For the poor, beleaguered, homophobic bakers of Arizona who may have to bake a cake for a gay couple. There's a simple way around this. Put that sign in your window, homophobic bakers of Arizona. Let us know who you are. Stop doing it on the down low. Do it in the light. But they'll do no such thing, of course, because the homophobic bakers of Arizona, like all bullies everywhere, are fundamentally, and at bottom, fucking cowards. Okay, coming up on today's show, we got Molina Williams, the perverted negress on BDSM. We have Dr. David Lay, clinical psychologist, author of The Myth of Sex Addiction, on a new study that he's done in What You Got. And of course, tons and tons of tons of your questions and your calls and your comments coming up now. Hi, I'm a longtime listener, and I've been waiting to finally ask you an important question. I'm with a woman that I love dearly, and... I'm having a hard time getting it up. Uh, I'm 22 years old, and I've never had this problem before. It's really becoming quite a buzzkill. I don't drink, and I don't do drugs. Uh, I've been clean and sober now for a little over a year. And, I mean, my diet's okay, and I don't don't really do anything that would inhibit that. 
But, you know, needless to say, we only have sex maybe once a week, and that's not okay. She doesn't like it. I don't like it. I don't know what to do. You know, I've tried, you know, taking, you know, like the Viagra that you get at porn shops and whatnot, and I I just have no idea what to do. You know, I'm going to go to the doctor and see what I can do there, but I was just wondering if you guys had any advice whatsoever. Dan, you are a very wise, wise man of not many years because you are a young man. Um, Anyways, thank you very much for um, listening to my call, and I appreciate it. My only wise, wise, wise beyond my years advice for you would be to go to the goddamn doctor, and you're doing that. So I'm I'm only playing your call because I want to sort of pivot and turn this into a public service announcement. Don't take the Viagra they sell in porn shops. They do not sell prescription medications in porn shops. Whatever quote-unquote Viagra you're getting at a porn shop is some sort of herbal supplement bullshit and it is not going to help you. And if you are indeed having some sort of physiological problem with your boners uh, and you require Viagra, taking something that's not Viagra that you've convinced yourself is Viagra – will only further undermine your confidence in your own Tinkerbell boners because it's not going to have any effect. And then you're going to think, even with Viagra, which you're not actually taking, I can't can't make this work. It doesn't help. Go to the goddamn doctor, you, caller. Everybody else out there, don't buy the bullshit boner pills they sell in porn shops. Hi, Dan. This is a 25-year-old male um, from the East Coast. I am queer. I have a question regarding my relationship. I've been with this guy for about two years now and started off great. But then after we started dating, we realized we were really different. Um, However, our similarities have kept us together. Maybe about a year ago, our sex life really declined. Um, It started with not having anal sex. Um, Then it started to only mutually masturbating with each other and then maybe some oral sex. And now it's been seven months since we actually had anal sex. And it's been about, I want to say, three months since we physically touched each other. Basically, when we go to bed, we go to bed, we kiss, and that's really it. Um, I find him attractive still, but he has put on some weight in the past three months. And so I'm wondering if that's also um, added to my sexual desire with him to go down. I don't know if that is a deterring factor of our relationship to keep going or not, but I am a very sexual person and I want my partner to also be as well. So I'm just wondering if, do you think a relationship could continue with a lack of sex as we have experienced in my relationship um, in the past two years? Yes, of course, a relationship can continue with a lack of sex. Um, The question here isn't whether relationships can continue uh, in sexless states. They can and they do and some people are happy in those relationships. If both persons in a relationship that's sexless, a marriage that's sexless, uh, are content and don't particularly miss it or prioritize it or ache for it or pine for it and they're both happy and happy together, awesome. They have a wonderful, happy, successful marriage whether they're being sexual with each other or not. But the question here is, can you continue in a relationship that's sexless? And it doesn't sound like you can. It doesn't sound like you want to. You miss the sex. You want to have sex. You're horny. And it ain't happening with your boyfriend of two years, seven months of which has been anal sexless and three months of it entirely sexless. Sounds like something's up. Might be 
you love this guy and you'd like to figure out how to make it work, time for a big convo. Maybe the weight gain is about depression. Maybe there's something else going on. Maybe he needs to get his ass to a doctor or a shrink. But you need to go to him. You're the leverage here. This is why people – a lot of studies show people in marriages, long-term relationships are healthier than people who are not. It's because when one of you kind of goes off the rails, the other says – you need to go to a doctor and makes an appointment or urges and pushes the person to go to a doctor and then when and then when the shoe's on the other foot the partner returns the favor right so you need to say to your partner look we're not having sex is it depression is it physical are you not into me anymore and if it is something biochemical if he needs to see a shrink your expression of dissatisfaction with the current state of your relationship is the leverage that he may need to get him in to the help that he needs, to get the over this, to figure it the fuck out. But you have to advocate for yourself. And in that, you're not just advocating for yourself. You're potentially also advocating for him. So go to him and say, clearly the sex has diminished or died. We need to figure out why because I'm not happy and I'm not going to stick around if things don't change. And then if things don't change, don't stick around. But you saying that may be what he needs to hear to go make the changes that he needs to make to keep you around. Hi, this is a 20-year-old bisexual college student living in New York. I have a question about disclosure. Uh, my mother died pretty late last year, um, and I've found that when I bring it up in conversation with someone that I'm interested in, they kind of get skittish and head for the hills. And I don't really want to talk about it because it does tend to bring down the room and it's kind of depressing. But um, it is obviously a big part of my life right now, and I don't know, it tends to come up. So my question is, is this something I should explicitly avoid talking about, or are people who it makes uncomfortable doing me a favor by ruling themselves out? I'm so sorry for your loss. You're so young. Really, at 20, you're still a kid. To lose your mom at 19 or 20, that's... That's horrifying. I lost my mom in my mid-40s and I felt so cheated because women in our family tend to live into their 90s and my mother died in her 60s and I felt so cheated and there I was in my mid-40s and partnered and had you know given her a grandchild and really we were – I'd made it all the way to through and clear adulthood uh, and had a relationship with my mother all that time and I felt cheated. So I can only imagine how you feel losing your mother at such a young age. Um, wish I could have gotten you on the phone to do a little follow-up call and break down with you how you're discussing this when it comes up. Um, you know, me talking with friends, my peer group, my cohort, right? Talking to people in their 40s about losing a parent. That's a very common experience for, for people roughly my age. Many of us in our 40s have lost a parent. Um, so it's a little less sort of existentially terrifying, scary, unheard of. And the reaction isn't one of shock. It's a common touchstone experience for middle-aged people. Not so much for 20-somethings, right? For people who are in their late teens, early 20s, rare to meet somebody your age who's lost a parent. But also not entirely unheard of. Um, and it doesn't seem to me that you mentioning folding into conversation in an appropriate way uh, at an appropriate time when people ask about your folks or your family that you've recently lost your mother, that doesn't all by itself strike me as something that would send someone running to the hills. So I'm wondering how when this comes up, you deal with it, discuss it, how you unpack it. If, if when this comes up, you are 
devastated. You're weepy as you, you know, over the last year have every right to be. That can communicate to someone that wherever you are emotionally right now, you're not in a place where you are capable of entering into a relationship, that you are grieving still. You're still in the throes of grief. And that doesn't make you an unsympathetic person, but it could make you an unattractive potential short-term – in that short-term of your grief, sex partner or relationship partner. Someone may look at you as you dissolve, if that's indeed what you're doing, uh, in these conversations about your mother and her death and your grief and think, I like her but she's so fragile right now. And there's a certain responsibility that you have when you're the partner or the boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse of someone who's grieving. You have to be there. And to jump in and start to date someone or hook up with somebody who's deep in that grieving process, for some people that's going to seem like a commitment, like they can't then casually date you because you're not in a casual place. You're in a place of grief and someone may not feel like they're ready to be a part of your support network or support system. And that is what we expect people who are the sex partners or girlfriends or boyfriends or husbands or wives of someone who's grieving the loss of a parent to be. They're expected to be emotional support and to be there for you in your grief. And someone that you've just met that you're thinking about dating who's looking at you and thinking, I really would like to sleep with this person may not be able to sign up for that, may not be ready to sign up for that, may feel like it's better to back off for now. Because they don't want to make some sort of implicit commitment to you to be there to help you process your grief when they don't think they can or don't think they may want to after they get to know you better, right? Because that's what dating, hooking up early on is. You know nothing about this person. You get to know a little bit more about them, a little bit more about them. You may decide to bail after one or two dates. It may make someone feel that they cannot bail on you after one or two dates or one or two hookups because they don't want to hurt you at this time when you're already hurting so badly. Does that make sense? So here's my advice for you. You don't have to bottle it up. You don't have to stick a cork in it. Identify the people in your life that you can really unburden yourself to, that you can get weepy and sloppy with about your mother's death and then be circumspect. Don't lie. You don't have to omit your mother from your life experience or this very defining experience from your recent life experience. But you can with someone casually that you've just met, that you're dating or you're thinking about hooking up with or you're at a party and they say, you know, what do your folks do? And you want to say, well, my dad does this and my mother, my mother recently passed away. And when they say, oh, I'm so sorry, say it's cool and drop it. That is in no way betraying your mother. You do not have to unpack the full extent of your grief at this moment with someone who is a stranger to you. That's kind of unfair to them even and inappropriate. They're not a person that you should be looking to for that kind of emotional support. So don't put them in a position of feeling as if you are demanding that kind of emotional support from them because that can be unattractive. That can send people running because what we all look for in partners is people of good judgment. We want someone with good judgment, high emotional IQ. And if you're turning to somebody that you just met at a party where people are hooking up and dancing and having fun and suddenly oversharing, not just sharing, you can share that your mother died, but oversharing, really unburdening yourself, that betrays poor judgment and low emotional IQ on your part because they're not the stranger that you just met who's attracted you at a party. They're not an appropriate target for that kind of ask. 
really. Because when you unburden yourself about your grief, you really are asking someone to step up in that moment and offer you their love and their support and their encouragement and their understanding. And someone you just met isn't in a position to do that and doesn't want to feel as if they are obligated at that moment to do that for a stranger. So lean on the people you know well for emotional support. Be short about it. Circumspect. Keep it brief with people you don't know well, including people you're thinking you might want to hook up with. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old female. I, I consider myself heteroflexible, queer, what have you. I just got out of a short-term relationship that was pretty sexually experimental, um, and I'm really dreading getting back into dating, especially online dating, because uh, in the past I found that men tend to be really aggressive when they realize via OkCupid or I've been on FetLife that I identify mostly as submissive. Um, and I'm not really sure how to deal with these these people um, who really are making a lot of assumptions about me based on online profiles and, you know, my kinks. So I was just wondering if you have any advice for dating nice, kinky people um, and how to deal with the people who are maybe not as nice as they, they should be. Joining me by phone is Molina Williams. She's a BDSM educator, author, storyteller, blogger, and executive slave. Molina is the co-author with Lee Harrington of Playing Well with Others, Your Field Guide to Discovering, Exploring, and Navigating the Kink, Leather, and BDSM Communities. It's a terrific book. Molina's been a frequent guest expert in Savage Love, and it's great to have her back here on the podcast again to handle these subby questions. Okay, Molina, how are you? I am spectacular. How are you? Uh, I am sleepy. It's that kind of day. <laughs> but I'm not sleepy now that you're here with me. It's always fun to talk with you. Yay! Um, so, I'm so uh, glad to be back. This is a question actually you handled recently in, in the print edition of Savage Love, where somebody, a woman who identifies as a sub, has some ads out there, and she gets a lot of sort of aggressive assholery, unwelcome, shitty attention from men who believe because she's identified as a sub, they can say and do anything? How does she handle that? Yeah. Here's the thing that I always find really baffling. I frequently get this question specifically from submissive women. And my first question back to them is, why do you feel the need to even respond or deal with them? The delete button is there for a reason. Anytime I see an email from someone who is impolite, who is presumptuous, who logs in with the sort of kneel before me slave as the opening sentence, it gets trashed, and I'm done with it. Uh, I think that people tend to be very much reflexive in their desire to please, even if it's a stranger on the Internet to whom they owe nothing. So my first piece of advice is don't respond to those. When the first approach that they take is to be kind of an asshole, you know what? It's not going to get any better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's not going to be a point where they wake up and they say, wow, I was so rude to you, person on the internet, I don't know. Allow me to be more polite. Now, if you start talking to someone and then they move ahead into that behavior, I think that that's a really excellent opportunity for you to take that as a red flag and say, well, is this someone with whom I really want to engage? And hopefully the answer is no. Sometimes people, though, in those interactions will begin to like go into DS kind of 
uh, verbal play as a kind of flirting. And if you've established sure. initially, if the you know their initial approach is respectful and egalitarian and equals, and then they try to turn up the temperature a little bit, and you're not ready for it, what's the? Right. How do you deflect that? And 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 what reaction are you looking for from somebody who maybe got out of control with the dom sub flirty too soon? If you attempt to deflect, yeah, and I actually had that happen to me very recently. And the reason I can speak so vehemently on this is because I feel myself falling into that once we have established that yes I am interested yes they are interested we're, you do want to feel each other out and see if your styles of dominance and submission mesh and so if someone's saying to you as you're on the phone oh if you were my slave I'd have you kneel in front of me that kind of turns you on but then they start to get really aggressive with it and you know start dictating to you what you will wear how often you will wear panties and all this other stuff Usually what I say is, hey, you know what? I totally get that this is really hot right now. I would like to continue us getting to know each other as human beings before we move really quickly into this dynamic because we haven't agreed on anything yet. And I tend to get very vulnerable when I'm in a submissive headspace. Would you be willing to allow our relationship to develop in a way that is more egalitarian so that we can ease into this dynamic? And therefore, you, that way you give them the choice to say, oh, yeah, you're right. I see what I'm doing might have made you uncomfortable. And if they don't say that, if they balk or they react like assholes, that's when you know to pull the plug. That's when they've revealed themselves exactly. to be the kind of person that you should not submit to. Yes. And the thing is that I get people get very excited. I get really excited on any new relationship. And when people are discovering BDSM or discovering a new partner, even if they've been doing it for 20 years, sometimes people, you know, they do let's flip the dogs of war and they're off at a full gallop. And I get that. However, once you have said to someone, hey, can we just ease off? That would really help me if their response is like this guy I recently was engaging with whose response was, well, that doesn't seem very submissive of you. If you were my slave, I would discipline you for that. I said, wow, you know what? You just overstepped a boundary. That's too far for me. And even if he at that point had said, I'm sorry, I fucked up, I might have continued the discussion. But he just took the opportunity to further underscore my lack of submissive behavior. Mm -hmm. And I closed with, you're right, that behavior wasn't very submissive. And do you know why? Because I have not agreed to submit to you. <laughs> there, there are the, you know, I've heard from particularly some friends of mine who are female and and kinky and submissive that what got under their skin when they were newbies, what was what they were manipulated with successfully, was all it took was a guy saying, "Well, you know, if you were real submissive," or yeah. and it sort of like played on their desire to 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 do this well to prove themselves as submissive, and they wound up submitting to assholes. And it took them some time to realize yeah. and learn that anybody who that was their approach, trying to pit you against yourself, you know, if you're real submissive, you wouldn't question my bullshit orders. You got to run from that guy. It's absolutely a primary red flag. And it is very much button that is used over and over and over again. And I cannot say to you that submissives outgrow this because it can still hook me even sometimes, like with this guy. I had a good half an hour on the phone with him where I was struggling with even coming out and saying, wow, wait a second, oh, hold on, I remember, that's actually a douche flag. Thank <laughs> you so much, we're done. So I let people know, I said, you will fall on your face with this, you will get hooked, but remember that feeling of confused humiliation 
because the next time someone does it, you might be a little bit less likely to be hooked and a little bit less likely to have that be a successful gambit that they utilize in order to hook you and get you playing against yourself because those type of people are very clever at manipulating folks when they know that what they want more than anything is to submit. It's a brilliant tactic and it's a spiny tactic. Molina Williams, the perverted negress, BDSM educator, author, storyteller, blogger, and executive slave. Find out more about Molina at her website, molina.com. And for newbies in the BDSM scene, get her book. What's the title of that book again, Molina? It is called Playing Well with Others, Your Guide to Discovering, Exploring, and Navigating the Kink, Leather, and BDSM Communities. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Thank you so much. Hey, Dan. I'm the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Um, I'm a 28-year-old bi guy in Chicago, and I wanted to say thank you, and I uh, think you should be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for your buck-first advice that helps out so much on Valentine's Day. Anyway, my actual question is, uh, where did the, uh, the term GGG actually come from? I've heard explanations of what it is and why it's awesome, but I want to know the backstory if you have one. Thank you. GGG came from the same place where so much that is good in this world uh, comes from. I yanked it out of my ass one day. I was writing my column. I was answering a question from a reader about you know how we should be for our partners, how our partners should be for us. And I just thought good giving a game. That's what you should be. Good in bed. Have the skills. Giving of pleasure, which sometimes means you give without an expectation of an immediate return, that you're invested enough in your partner's pleasure, that you can take pleasure in giving pleasure and game, kind of up for anything, up for adventure, up for fun, that sexual adventure and adventuring and new experiences, all that stuff that we're sort of hardwired to seek, that shouldn't end when your relationship becomes serious and committed. Um, that doesn't have to end if your relationship is monogamous. That you should be game, up for anything, happy to try things, experiment, GGG. So that's where it came from. My ass, the same place DTMFA came from, the same place the campsite rule came from, the same place the tea and sympathy rule came from, the same place Santorum with a big assist from my readers came from, the same place fuck first came from. So much good in this world came from my ass. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight female. I've been kind of casually dating this 26-year-old who I really like, and he's really, you know, fun and caring and kind. And I found out last week that he has a two, almost three-year-old child and that he's a single parent all by himself. I don't really know how I feel about this. I, I mean, I like him. He's, very cool and we get along great and we work in the same industry so we see each other you know fairly frequently when we're working and I just I mean neither of us I think are emotionally invested where are so emotionally invested where we can't just kind of walk away you know cut ties and just walk away but I like him enough I think to you know kind of say okay like I'll hang I'll hang out with the kid but I just, I don't know if I can sort of take on that responsibility as a 24-year-old who doesn't even really take care of, a, a, I don't really take care of myself. So how am I supposed to, you know, sort of kind of take care of a, a toddler? So how long have you been dating this guy? Um, It's about five months now. 
And how did you find so, out? How did you find out that he had a three-year-old? Um, it just kind of popped up. He was um, he picked me up to go to eat, and I saw a kid's seat in the back of his car. Okay, and who? And he's a single custodial parent. He is the full-time single parent of this child. Yeah, all all the time. It's all it's all him. Who's looking after the kid when you guys are out on your dates? Um, he has a, a babysitter. Uh huh. And when he works, because um, we're in the same business, he has a full time sort of nanny, mm-hmm. I guess. Okay, and so why did he over the first few months of the relationship has he told you why he hid the, the, the this kid from you? Why he didn't mention that he was a single parent? He was afraid that you might react badly. He was afraid of what? Um, well, I think I think so, and he just I, we were pretty casual about it, mm-hmm. and it just I mean I'm very outspoken about me not wanting kids, <laughs> <laughs> so I think <laughs> I think that probably kind of led him to the fact that he wasn't going to tell me until you got to know him better, and then you had to reconsider how you felt about kids because that would impact whether you got to continue seeing him. Not a bad strategy, dating wise, on his part. Exactly. He kind of just like reeled me in, I guess. <laughs> so you've been dating five months and, and you say, and, and this is to your credit, you say you're wary of assuming some sort of parental role in the life of this child. And you are right to be wary of that. Not so much for your own sake, but for that kid's sake. Because a few months in, five months in, you don't know if this is the relationship you're going to be in for the rest of your life or if this is the relationship you're going to be in for mm-hmm. eight, eight more weeks. Right? Yeah, exactly. So if, you, exactly. if this kid bonds with you, emotionally and you become sort of a parental figure in this child's life and an important figure in this child's life. And then you and this guy break up three months later, four months later, that's going to be traumatizing to the child and unnecessarily so. Yeah, exactly. What you should do right now is kind of keep your distance. And so my question to you is, Mm -hmm. has he been anxious to introduce you to this child? Has he been anxious to involve you in the life of his child? Or is he also wary of you moving in too quickly of his kid establishing a bond with you at a time when you guys are still figuring out whether there's something there? Um, well, he's not too wary of it. I mean, he says like, oh, you know, his, his son is, you know, oh, he's a cool kid and he's trained very well. And, you know, I think he'd like you, but he doesn't kind of like push it on me. Mm-hmm. So it's more like, oh, if you meet him, great, but I'm not going to force him you right. know, force you to be around him. So he's not hustling you into forming a relationship with this child as a part of his grand strategy to rope you down and tie you down and make you feel <laughs> trapped in this relationship, right? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Okay, well then I don't think you have anything to worry about. I don't think there's a problem here. I think you should make this explicit. You guys should have a conversation where you say, I would like to keep dating you and, you know, if things get serious and it looks like open-ended long-term, I think that's when I should meet your kid. And that's when I think, you know, there should be an introduction and we should roll out our relationship to your kid, but really not before because I don't want to be in a position where I feel if I have to end this relationship or I don't want you to be in a position where if you feel that you have to end this relationship, which is almost invariably what happens at this stage, right? Most relationships of three, four, five months duration don't go long haul. I don't want you to feel or me to feel like we can't pull the plug because we don't want to hurt this helpless, innocent child. So for right now, <laughs> at least the next six months, I don't. Uh, I want to hear about your kid. It's an important part of your life, but I don't think it would be appropriate if I met your kid. Okay, great. Thank, that's that's awesome. That's kind of what I was hoping you would you would say. The posture for both of you is you're both acting in the best interest of this child and, and securing the kid's emotional safety, which is paramount in this sort of a situation. 
yeah, I mean, I I would never want to just like have him get close and then just abandon him because I I couldn't live with myself if I did that. Because that's what boyfriends are for, not boyfriends' children. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're for getting close and then cutting <laughs> off. You don't do that to children. You do that to boyfriends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good luck. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a Magnum listener. I love the show, and anyone who isn't a Magnum listener should be. Anyway, my question is, should someone feel obligated to tell a one-night stand that he or she is HIV positive? I've had this debate with my gay friends, and most of them seem to think that you should. But I personally don't think you should if it's just for a fuck. I totally agree with you that you should let people know if you're going to have a relationship with them, but I feel like a one-night stand is different. I mean, unless you're planning on having condom-free bareback sex, who cares, right? But my friends say it's morally wrong to lie, and I agree with them. It's wrong to lie about that, but um, I don't feel like it's wrong if you're just not telling them. I use your advice and assume every one-night stand is it. Try to be positive so that I'm always safe. And I have a feeling some guys might be less likely to have a one-night stand with someone just because you're HIV positive. So why not just hold back the fact? I mean, don't lie. Just, you know, just don't tell. Or am I wrong about this? There are so many issues at play here around disclosure, around HIV stigma, around what you have a right to expect from a person that you do not know and who does not know you and who you are never going to see again around their advocacy for their own health or your own health in that moment. Um, and also the law. You know, in some states, people who are HIV positive are legally obligated to disclose their HIV status to their sex partners, regardless of whether they're in treatment, regardless of whether they use condoms. There's a famous case in Iowa of a guy named Nick Rhodes, who's HIV positive, who had sex in 2008 with a guy. Uh, he didn't disclose the fact that he was HIV positive, which he's obligated to do under Iowa law. They used condoms. Uh, he had, you know, he was in treatment, so presumably a very low or non-existent viral load, so very non-infectious. Used condoms. The guy he slept with did not get infected. Pressed charges that guy, and he was sentenced. Nick Rhodes to 25 years in prison in Iowa. And sent to prison, appealed that, his sentence was wiped out but he was on probation for five years and now has to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life in Iowa because he's HIV positive and he had sex with a condom and did not infect anybody. He did everything that we ask people with HIV to do. Knows his own status, is in treatment, uses condoms, protects the safety of his partner but because he didn't disclose, he's now a sex offender in Iowa for the rest of his life. Appalling. So there's that aspect. And I'm not familiar with the law in all 50 states or all around the world about disclosure. So if you're thinking, if you're HIV positive about not disclosing, you might want to consult the local statute where you are before you make your decision. Stigma. You know, there are people out there who won't sleep with people that they who have disclosed to them that they're positive, which disincentivizes disclosure. People want to know if you're positive, and then if you tell them they're not going to sleep with you or be intimate with you at all, whether you're going to be penetrative sex or non-penetrative sex. And that doesn't exactly create a culture of honesty and disclosure, right? If people who are HIV positive know that telling the truth might mean not getting the sex that they're after. And what always strikes me as a little bit crazy about this is 
people can lie. You can say, are you positive? They can say no when they know that they are. People can say that they're not because the last time they tested, they weren't, but they've become infected in the interim. That guy who the last time he tested, he was negative and became infected and does not know that he is infected is much more infectious than the HIV positive guy who discloses that he's pos and then says that I'm in treatment and I have zero viral load and we're going to use condoms. The guy who's positive in treatment with a non-existent viral load and a condom on his dick is much less of a danger to you than the guy who believes he's negative and isn't because the virus is running rampant in his body and it's kicking out and replicating and he is infectious. And you're often not you caller but a person's sometimes shitty judgment when someone says they're negative, they take more risks with that person because they're negative. They said so. And that's why we see the infection rates that we do to a great degree. All of that said, are you obligated to disclose to a one-night stand? You know, if I was the ruler of the universe and I could write all the laws, I think you have an obligation to be safe. I don't think someone that you do not know has a right to demand from you details about your health status or your health history or whether you're HIV positive. I do think that you can keep that to yourself. I also think that you really should disclose. Do you see the distinction I'm making there? You can keep it to yourself, but you probably shouldn't. You ought to disclose, but you don't have to. And I think disclosure is a wonderful tool, as I've said a million times on this show. Disclosure. When you tell them your pause, it tells them one thing about you. Their reaction tells you everything about them. It is a sorting hat. Like Harry Potter, it is a sorting hat. It is magic. It is a tool. It is a magic wand that you can use to separate the good folks from the bad folks, the crazy folks from the sane folks, the irrational HIV-phobes from the rational HIV-phobes. I think we're all a little afraid of HIV, as we should be, but there's rational fear and irrational fear. It's a wonderful sorting mechanism. It is a superpower. So I'm all over the place with this answer. You should disclose. You're not obligated to disclose. In some states, actually, you are obligated to disclose. Stigma is a crazy thing and it does disincentivize disclosure for people who are pause if they feel like they're going to be punished or retaliated against. And we don't have a right to expect that someone that we do not know at all is going to lay out their whole health history for us. So I do think that people who are having one-night stands, having anonymous sex, have to take responsibility for the fact that you are crawling into bed with people you do not know everything and cannot know everything about and you are going to have to advocate for your own safety in those moments and use a condom and be careful even if they tell you that they're negative because they could be lying and know it or they could be lying and not know it. Hi, Dan. My name is Gio. I'm a 25-year-old guy living in New York City. First-time caller, long-time listener. Um, I'm actually calling because my friend is heartbroken over a girl. He can't eat. He can't sleep. He walks around like a zombie. He can't look anyone in the eyes, and he barely speaks. Um, the thing is, my friend and the girl that he loves, we're all classmates in grad school. It's a really intimate program, and he has to see her day in and day out because of class, because of work in the evenings. A little backstory, after seeing each other for uh, six months-ish, uh, things ended abruptly, uh, partially because the girl may or may not 
has feelings for another guy who's also in the program. So he's in love with her, but she's not sure where her feelings lie. Uh, it sometimes gets a little bit incestuous in these programs. So I defer to you, Dan. Any advice for dealing with the pain of a breakup when every single day you have to see and interact with your ex and perhaps interact and see the love interests that they have, the new people in their lives? My advice is just grow the fuck up. My advice is there are people who are getting divorced who have to see each other every day because they have children and they have to pass kids off and pick them up and share them and manage parenting responsibilities together and then sometimes if you know the divorce was caused by somebody running off with the other woman or the other man, they have to then interact with that person that their husband or wife fell in love with and left them for and you just have to suck it up and deal and that's what you have to say to your friend. It sucks, it hurts but you're going to have to suck it up and deal. You're going to have to fake it till you make it, put on a brave face and pretend you're okay with it, pretend you don't care and soon – You'll begin to feel it. You'll begin to feel that you don't care and you will make it after you fake it for a while. So let him have his wallow. It's been six months. They just broke up. Let him have his big, tragic, pathetic, we've all been there, wallow in his pain and misery and the existential, unique drama of it all, although it's not existential at all, nor is it unique. And then after like four or five weeks of it, say, dude, ovary up already. Get over it. Get over her. There's other girls out there, other girls in our program. It sucks. Yes, we've all been there. Don't stay there. That's the part that people leave out when they say we've, we've all been there. What people are implicitly saying is I've been there and I left that place. We've all been there. I was there. You're there now. You can get the fuck out of that place but you've got to walk out of it. You've got to with your own two feet get the fuck out of there. Make the decision to leave that place where you are now, where I have been, where everyone's been. Leave it. Go fuck somebody else. Go date somebody else. Interact with her as little as possible during the day. Turn a blind eye and get over it and get over yourself. Hi, Dan. I'm an 18-year-old bisexual dude and I have a problem. So I've been dating this girl for two months now and ever since I met her, I've felt really bad about the fact that I do sex work. I have sex and money with men. You know, I advertise on Craigslist for introducing and all this shit. And, like, I meet guys in bars and I go like, uh, whatever. Um, yeah. How the fuck do I break it to this chick that I do sex work? Because I've been doing it ever since I met her. And I <laughs> I made a post on Reddit asking about my problem. They all said I was an asshole for not telling her by now, which is definitely true. But hell, like, help. What the fuck do I say? How do I say it? It's such a problem for me because I feel like I'm duping this girl and posing risks to her that aren't, yeah, that, that, that she shouldn't be exposed to. I'm uh, drunk and high right now, which is probably why I called you. So I apologize for the rambling, Miss. Take care. Bye. It's a fine thing to be drunk and high. I have been drunk and high myself. 
on many occasions. I've reached that stage of life where I am drunk or high, but not drunk and high because eventually your body can't take that and your brain can't take that kind of battering. Um, I would hope, and I'm just going to throw this out there. I, I don't think everyone who does sex work um, has substance abuse problems or, or is medicating uh, themselves with alcohol and and drugs um, to you know paper over the pain and the horror of doing sex work because for a lot of people it isn't a painful or horrifying experience. But just in case that's you, just in case you're not happy doing sex work and you are burying that pain in alcohol and whatever it is that's getting you high, I would encourage you to get out of sex work regardless of whether you're with this girl. Right. If the reason you're calling drunk and high, if the reason you're drunk and high right now is because you know doing sex work is so painful, stop doing sex work. Now, a lot of people your age are drunk and high and not doing sex work, so it's not like it's necessarily about the sex work. But just in case it is, I gotta say that. Um, disclosure: you know, when you meet somebody, they make assumptions about you, and we can allow people to make assumptions about us and one of the assumptions that people will make and it is a perfectly reasonable assumption to make is this 18-year-old that I'm dating is not having sex for money with men. You don't say whether you're out to her about being bi, much less out to her about doing sex work. But if you've presented to her as a straight dude or just a bi 18-year-old college student dude or bi 18-year-old high school senior dude or bi 18-year-old out in the workforce dude – She's not going to necessarily think he could be doing sex work. Therefore, I should be more vigilant about my protection, about using condoms or whatever else than I would be otherwise. The fact that you are doing sex work is info that she as a sex partner, if indeed you guys are having sex, has a right to. She has a right to know that because you have placed yourself by doing sex work at greater risk of sexually transmitted infections that comes with the job, multi-partner sex, right? The more people you have sex with, the more exposure potentially to sexually transmitted infections. That's true whether you're doing sex work or not. But she has a right to know that the person that she is sleeping with is at greater risk of sexually transmitted infection so that she can decide whether she wants to continue seeing you or be a little bit more vigilant about condoms or what she does or does not do with you at this moment in your life when you are doing sex work. And who knows? Who knows how she'll react? You sound like a pretty liberated, sexually free kind of guy. Presumably that's something she likes about you. Free, sexually liberated, bi, sexually adventurous. Who knows? Maybe this will be one more thing in that list of things she likes about you. It's kind of crazy. My boyfriend, oh, he's 18. He's so cute. He's so high. He's so drunk. He's so hot. And men pay him for sex and he comes home and tells me the stories about it and then we fucking, 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 fuck. She might be down with it. And that's what you want, really. You want a girlfriend who you don't have to lie to, you don't have to hide from, that when this comes out and invariably everything in the end does come out. That she's not going to feel betrayed or frost you or out you to other people in your life who you don't want to know, right? So I think you knew that I was going to tell you to disclose and I think that's why drunk and high you called. So here I am telling you to disclose. We're going to take a quick break here from your calls for a What You Got. What You Got for new listeners is a regular segment where we invite sex researchers and scientists on to talk about the results of their latest work. Joining us today, Dr. David Lay, a clinical psychologist and author of The Myth of Sex Addiction. 
He's got a new report out on porn addiction, and he's just published a paper in the scientific journal Current Sexual Health Reports. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Dr. Lai. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So your research, you looked at all these surveys, you investigated the investigations into porn addiction, and what did you find? What do you got? You know, basically we found that the, the emperor has no clothes. Um, it's naked, uh, and you can see the emperor's ding-a-ling. The <laughs> porn addiction concept is, uh, it, you know, it, it's a paper tiger. It is, in, in essence, the expression of our cultural fear about sex and pornography. It's an attempt to demonize uh, a lot of sexual minorities and sexual behaviors. The, the, the real concerning thing, and the reason we were asked to do this report, is that <clears throat> the media and uh, the legal system and clinicians around the country... And Dr. Phil... And Dr. Phil are, well, you know, in fact, I have been on Dr. Phil many times, and i got to tell you, Dr. Phil is coming around. Oh, good. Last time I was on, he actually made fun of my opponent, who was arguing that sex addiction was real. So well, that, I that's think Dr. Phil is coming I'm, around to it. The last time I saw Dr. Phil say anything about porn, he was talking about porn addiction, and what you found is that's bullshit. Porn addiction is bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's, it, it is a distraction. And, and that, I think, is the biggest message of our paper is that, you know, the, uh, the, there is an industry that makes a lot of money off of uh, selling the idea of porn addiction and sex addiction. You know, they make anywhere from 600 to $1,000 a day cash money. Your insurance won't cover it because it's not a real disorder by selling treatment for porn, porn or sex addiction. And unfortunately, there's no research that that treatment works. It is at best experimental. You know, one of the real dangers, though, is that it leads people to think that what they are seeing um, is the cause of porn. And what I often say is porn's not the problem you are. If you've got problems in your life and you're using porn, you're the problem. It, it's foolish and ridiculous to try and blame the problem on porn. Okay, that, that's what I was going to get to next. Like, we've all known people in our lives, you know, uh, I think one of the film critics at The New Yorker has written about this, who've gotten a little overboard on their porn consumption. That, that there, there are people out there who can't shut the laptop and get away from Xtube. There are people out there who, who's, who've built their lives around jacking off in front of their computers. The ubiquity and ease of availability of porn now is a different and new phenomenon in a lot of people's lives. It used to be you had to like get a magazine or you had to go to a dirty bookstore. You had to rent a, a DVD or, or a cassette tape back in the day, back in ancient days, or you had to go to a – you know look at the murals in Pompeii thousands of years ago, right? And now it's everywhere. It's on our phones. Like porn follows us wherever we go. And there are some people who cannot – seemingly control themselves, cannot limit their consumption and are swept away by it. Are they not addicts? What are they? Well, what, what the research shows us first is that, in fact, the Internet has co not caused an epidemic of porn use, but the greatest increase from no porn use to using porn actually occurred when the VCR came into practice. <laughs> when the VCR was on the market, um, that led to more people looking at pornography that had, never, that had never looked at pornography before. So the people that are looking at pornography today on the Internet, they were looking at pornography already. The, has there been an increase in their use? Well, we found two things. Number one is the research shows that the people who use porn the most tend to be 
people who have high libidos and enjoy sexual sensation-seeking. They're looking for that kind of sexual thrill in a lot of ways, not just porn. Mm -hmm. In many cases, folks are using porn because they want more sex than their partner does. Now, over the life of a relationship, there is always going to be the case that one partner wants sex more than the other one at some point. And in our society, that's tough because the one who wants sex the least always controls how much sex the couple has. Let me interject, let me interject there. I often say this to people that you know, one person has a lower libido than the other person. And you know, I've had people say to me, you know, I have a lower libido. My partner looks at porn. I consider that cheating. I consider that adultery when he looks at porn. And I consider it what prevents adultery often in a lot of those relationships. Like you have a low libido. Your partner, male or female, has a higher libido and they are able to get their own needs met through porn. Or even if you guys have matching libidos, there's still that desire for variety and your partner gets variety through porn without having to touch another living human being. So it's actually often in a lot of relationships, porn makes monogamy possible. Absolutely. You know, porn decreases rates of infidelity. Porn access decreases uh, rates of, uh, of uh, prostitution. Um, greater access to pornography around the world in every country studied has correlated with a decrease in sex crime. And that's one, of the, that's one of the things that people really struggle with is that, guess what? Porn access and porn is good for society. But folks don't want to hear that because they want to demonize porn. They want to look this is scary. I want to hear that. I want you to say that again. <laughs> Access to porn is good for society. Access to porn is absolutely good for society. And it, 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 as you said, it leads to greater abilities of sexual expression. One of the things that we talk about in the paper is that, you know, the, the over-focus on the negative aspects of porn lead us to ignore the positive aspects of porn, that couples who watch porn together have healthier relationships. Couples who watch porn together engage in more novel kind of sexual behaviors that may actually facilitate longer-term monogamy. Okay, I know your paper didn't address this, and, and the paper is really interesting and people should go read it, um, and you really call to account the people who are profiting off this bullshit non-disorder, right? Porn addiction. Absolutely. But what about people whose concerns, you know, there's a lot of moral condemnation that, that's sort of folded up into this anti-porn crusade and, you know, the, the, the theory and practice of porn addiction. But what about people whose concern with porn is how it's produced, that it may not harm an individual, it may lower sex crime rates in a society, uh, it may be good for a couple to watch porn together. But what about people who are being abused in the production of porn? Like, the, like the, the explosion of porn, the ubiquity of the porn, it's resulted in Absolutely. a lot more porn being made. Are more people being harmed in the production of porn than ever before? We didn't answer that, but it's a, it's a good question. And I'm actually writing a new book. I've got two books out, and I'm working on my third, and it's going to be called The Gentleman's Guide to Responsible Porn Use because I'm really wanting to answer that question for those guys out there like you and me who want to be ethical in our porn use. And we don't want to watch porn where somebody has been taken advantage of or drugged. And so as a result, I've been doing interviews with uh, some porn manufacturers and some legal uh, folks around the world. What I'm hearing is that if you want to use porn responsibly and if you want your porn to be ethical then guess what it can't be free because if you you know there ain't no such thing as a free lunch 
And if you're watching free porn, then you're watching porn that you can't trust. You're watching porn that may have been made outside the United States where laws uh, regarding safe, ethical, legal, uh, appropriate uh, actors don't apply. Um, if you're watching free porn, like, God help me, even on Tumblr, uh, any of the tube sites, they are not required to maintain records that, that those folks are, are of legal age even. Mm-hmm. So free porn puts you at risk of, A, violating laws in terms of seeing uh, or accessing child pornography, but B, at a greater level, it puts you at risk of potentially you know, accessing pornography that people were hurt by. So give us the takeaway. What is the takeaway of your study? What, what should people think about? What should people know? Boil it down to, to one sentence. The take, I think ultimately the takeaway is if anybody is telling you that porn is demonic and porn is going to – porn and masturbation are bad for you, you should – uh, run away because they are chicken little. They're trying to drag you into the cave like chicken little did. And the people that went into the cave with chicken little because they were scared the sky was falling, they got eaten by the fox. <laughs> Porn is not destructive to, to us, to our sexuality, or to our society. We should be talking more about uh, the sexual issues that it brings up because we're learning more about human sexuality from porn and internet porn than we've ever known before. You did, but can you stick around and take a call with us? Absolutely, I'd love to. But before we go to the call, I just want to point out that when you say that if somebody is telling you porn is bad for you and you should masturbate, that you should run from that person, that you should get as far away as possible from that person, you've just told everybody out there who's Mormon to leave the Mormon church because they are right now on a big <laughs> anti-porn, anti-masturbation campaign. And, and, and I mean, you, you must have seen that video. I you know, did see that video. It's terrifying. I, actually, I mean, my God. I love that. Listeners who haven't seen the Mormon anti-porn soldier left on the battlefield video, just to recap, it's just this little like morality play where you know the guy notices that his roommate is beating it to internet porn, and they say that that is comparable and, and doesn't speak up, doesn't say anything to his roommate, and that's comparable to leaving a wounded soldier on the battlefield to die because masturbation is like bleeding to death but with cum. And and then it brings in all this World War II kind of imagery, you know, depicting, you know, that, that by, by fighting pornography, you're fighting the Nazis. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's but, but what I love about it most, this video, and for listeners who haven't seen it, is the guy does the right thing. He steps up. He confronts his roommate. He walks into his room while he's masturbating and then takes him to a priest. Because where, you, where teenage boys who are masturbating too much really need to do, they really need to go, they, they literally show this in the video. His friend turns him into his bishop, and his bishop takes him into a room privately and closes the door. What we know from experience is teenage boys are safest from masturbation if they're locked in a small room with a priest. They're not going to have to <laughs> masturbate anymore because the priest is going to help them out. Okay, so let's stick around and take a call with us, would you? Sounds good. Hi, Dan. I have a question about pornography and marriage. Before I was, I enjoyed pornography. I liked it. I knew what I liked and I knew what I didn't. And it was something that was not really a part of my life every day, but, you know, it, it was something I looked at and I enjoyed. I got married a few years ago and my wife doesn't like it, doesn't appreciate it. She actually thinks that it, it can ruin relationships. She thinks that it can uh, 
it can be something that can hurt our marriage if we were to get into it and maybe watch it even as much as uh, as, as I'd like to or maybe in any capacity. My question is, is that I've been still watching it when she's either not around or let's say she goes to bed early. And I have been doing this for most of the marriage. And I feel like it's a no harm, no foul situation. But I think I'm also being selfish at the same time. And I don't want to hurt my marriage. I don't want in my marriage. And I've tried asking my wife to let's try it out. Let's give it a, let's just see if you like it. She, she doesn't want to, she, she feels that it, it, it just wouldn't provide anything good for us. And, uh, and our sex life isn't bad at all. So that's where, that's where I am at the moment. It's just a question I had, what your thoughts would be is continuing continuing to watch it when she's oblivious to this be a bad thing. If I told her, I, I think she would ask me to stop and maybe that's why I, I haven't brought it up to her. Maybe that's why she doesn't know. So I was wondering your thoughts and, and thanks again, Dan. This comes up a lot in my practice. I don't know about your practice. You're a clinical psychologist, but in my practice, the you know, one person, and I don't want to gender this, but usually the wife doesn't want the husband watching porn. The husband watches porn, feels bad about it, worries about getting caught. My solution, my proposed solution is kind of a don't ask, don't tell thing. He pretends not to look at porn. You pretend to believe him. And if he goes out of his way to cover his tracks, if you, unco- if you, if you stumble over evidence once in a great while, like show some gratitude for the effort he's made to cover his tracks most of the time and turn a <laughs> blind eye. But what's your advice in a situation like this? He's watching porn. His wife disapproves. He feels guilty. He doesn't know if he's a bad dude. I think that this is the time to facilitate conversation about sexuality and, and sexual desires, sexual needs. Um, no, no, no. I disagree. Know, I'm going to cut you off right there. I disagree. The time to have that, right? the time to have that conversation was before you fucking got married. <laughs> Except that we get married young and we get married when we are, you know, under the drug of early romance and, and we want what we want and we're willing to say or agree to anything um, to get married. And unfortunately, women, you know, women are as subject to this stuff as we are because they are programmed with the idea that porn is cheating and that porn takes something away from them. You know, women are told, don't get give away the the milk for free because nobody will buy the cow. Well, porn puts a a high-speed milk faucet right (laughs) in the kitchen, and guys can get that milk as much as they want, and women no longer have control of sexuality. So I think that this is a place for men to step up and start taking responsibility and saying, you know what, I love you, I want to stay married to you. Um, One of the ways that I can do that and still feel comfortable with myself and my own desires for variety is through pornography. It would be great if you watched it with me. The healthiest relationships are those where women know that their husband watches porn and they've talked about it. Mm -hmm. And you know that for a fact? You know that because research? In fact, yeah, there was some research that just came out a few weeks ago that that looked at uh, that looked at couples and and whether the man used pornography and whether the wife was aware of it and the ones where the wives were aware of it um, were healthier relationships. There was greater communication. There was greater mutual respect. There's also greater responsibility and ownership. One of the things that I think that is really 
a struggle here is that we, especially when sex is involved, we we treat anything that is private as equivalent to secret. I think that ultimately there there should be appropriate healthy sexual privacy in a relationship that, you know, if the wife wants to masturbate in the bathtub, it's not appropriate for the husband to demand to know what she was thinking about. Equally, if the husband wants to jerk off to porn, it's not necessarily the wife's ownership to control that or know what it was. And I just want to jump in here to, of course, say that there are women who watch porn. There are women who like porn. There are some men who don't watch porn or so they say. Um, I don't believe them, but whatever. Uh, and so it's not always this cut and dry, but this does tend to shake out along gender lines where women have a problem with it, it and, and men don't. Um, he were, His wife thinks, he says, that porn can ruin a relationship. And I would just want to put it in his head that I think controlling behavior and irrationality ruins relationships, which he should say to his wife. But this is – you know, I disagree with you. These are things like basic fundamental sexual compatibility. These are things you want to hammer out with someone before you get married. If you know porn is a part of your sexuality, part of your sexual expression, don't marry someone who has a problem with porn unless you can get a play saver like, all right, do what you need to do and just – be discreet and considerate. If you can get that out of someone, that concession, then you could probably marry somebody who has a problem with porn. But otherwise, I don't think you should. I absolutely, you know, on my very first date with my wife, she asked me if I masturbated. And I think that's amazing. I look back and I think, holy shit, how lucky I was to, to end up with her. But she's one in a million, and unfortunately, that is not a conversation that I think people are comfortable having. You know, one of, the, one of the struggles that we have right now is that there's all this outcry that kids are learning about sex from porn. Well, you know what? That is on us because we are stuffing this abstinence-only education down kids' throats. They hunger for information about sex, so where can they get it? They go to porn. I think that we are treating sex inappropriately by not talking about it openly. And so as a result, people treat all of this stuff secretly. Ultimately, I think it's got to be a huge social conversation where we start opening up and acknowledging these sexual desires. Your wife just needs to run around the country asking everybody if they masturbate, just to get everybody on the record. You know, that's what she does in bars. It is fascinating, <laughs> and people will answer her. It is the most... It, it, Take her to a bar. It is fun. Dr. David Lay is a clinical psychologist and the author of The Myth of Sex Addiction. He's got a new study, some new research he just did into porn addiction. Uh, you can read about it at the Scientific Journal, Current Sexual Health Reports. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Dr. Lay. Thanks a lot, Dan. I loved it. Hi, Dan. I've had this friend slash drinking buddy with benefits back at home for almost four years the whole time I've been in college. I'm a senior now. We spend a lot of time together over breaks, but this guy drinks a lot. And we really only hang out at night drinking with his friends. This winter break when I was hanging out with him, a bunch of really shitty things happened, and I ended up telling him that I think he has a drinking and drug problem. Some background on his drinking. He and one or two friends often kill a handle just sitting in his room doing shots every few minutes. I've seen him blacked out a number of times, but it's also really hard to tell how drunk he is. Several times that I know of, uh, he's injured himself and not known about it till the morning, as well as getting into lots of drunken fights and getting a DUI. He's also a total peer pressurer, and all the time his friends playfully blame him for how fucked up they got that weekend. My friend and I also think that his dad is an alcoholic based on some weird things we've seen and heard at his house. This winter break, he blocked out and stood me up a few times and didn't apologize or even comment on it. But the big thing that happened was this. 
One night he told me to come over to his friend's apartment, but when I got there, they were just sitting there doing lines of coke, and his best friend was jokingly blaming him for the insane amount of coke they'd done in the last 24 hours. I was kind of pissed off that he told me to come over because I've expressed my dislike of coke before. He was also being an asshole to me that night, barely talking to me and scoffing at everything I would say. I left him to go have fun somewhere else, and a few days later, he texted me, inviting me to, like, a kickback at his place. I sent him a long text that said, basically, I don't think I can hang out with you anymore unless we're relatively sober. It seems like you have a drug problem. It isn't fun for me to watch you drink yourself stupid, and you've been a jerk lately, blah, blah, blah. But I hope to hear from you again and that you figure your shit out. Sorry. Once I stopped being angry, I realized I sounded like an enormous fucking bitch in that text, and he reacted pretty badly. He replied, some things aren't meant to be texted, which is definitely true, but I'm super timid and never would have been able to say that to his face. Then he said, it wasn't what I said, but how I said it. That's the last uh, thing that I've heard from him. I tried to apologize for that text properly, but he wouldn't answer my calls for the next few days, so I texted him my apology. He hasn't spoken to me since. It's been about four weeks since I tried calling him. I knew I was risking our friendship by telling him that I think he has a drug problem, but it hurts a lot that after hooking up and being friends for almost four years, he refuses to talk to me. I know I really pissed him off and hurt him by saying that to him, but it's obviously not just because of the way I said it. I don't know what the right thing to do is. Should I continue to leave him alone, or should I at some point try calling him again? And I don't know if I should just leave him alone and let him cool off and for how long. I'd really love your advice, Dan. Yours is one of those calls where we're anxiously waiting for you to wrap it up, wrap up the question so I can start yelling at you. You're so well fucking rid of this drunk, drugged out, DUI, inconsiderate, asshole, bag of shit. And you can't see it somehow. You need to go look in the mirror and see if there's like a fleshlight logo on your forehead and you're an inanimate object that exists to milk his dick. Because you're not. You're not going to see the fleshlight registered trademark on your forehead. You are not a masturbatory device that this drunk, coked out asshole can pick up and discard whenever he wants. Get the fuck away from him. You are well rid of him. How dare he scold you? for failing to address him in precisely the right, this clod, this bull in a china shop, this psycho drunk blackout asshole who careens through life, knocking shit over, including with his car, it sounds like, has the temerity, has the nerve to wag a finger in your face, to parse this text from you and find it lacking in what, decorum? He has some idea about decorum? Fuck him. It's March. May is two months away. You're in a university town. You're, you're on a college campus. There are other people to fuck. He's not even your boyfriend. He's not your fiance. He's a friend with benefits. He is, and he doesn't sound like a very friendly friend with benefits. He sounds like an entitled asshole with a drinking problem, a drug problem, and friend problems. And you are well the fuck rid of him. That you are calling me and wringing your hands about how you can get back into his good graces shocks and appalls me. If I was your friend, if I was in the room with you, I don't know if you can get shaken baby syndrome as an adult, but I would be shaking you so hard right now that we'd see if that was possible. Wake up, go fuck somebody else, date other people, and count your lucky stars that this asshole is out of your life. Hey, Dan, this is in response to the episode where the girl broke up with the guy for kissing with a stabbing motion with a tongue. 
I'm a sensual massage therapist, and I tend to kiss clients from time to time. And I had one client who just loved to kiss and stab with the tongue. And I gently told him, hey, let me give you a little advice on how to kiss. This is a really sexual, sensual way that I like to be kissed. And I showed him, and now he kisses his boyfriend like that, and his boyfriend likes it. So teach these people, help them. She's doing him more harm by letting him go out, stabbing other people with his tongue. Hi, Dan. I was once the bad kisser in the relationship. And I can remember, it was just eight years ago, one of the guys I was dating, um, his technique with me. We were laying on my bed, and I was kissing him, and I was all, uh, all tongue. And he kind of gently pushed me back, really gently, and was like, hey, baby, why don't we try using a little less tongue? How about let's kiss a little slowly, a little more gently? Of course, there was a little part of me that was just absolutely mortified. Oh, my gosh, I'm a terrible kisser. But the majority of me was like, okay, all right, I can do this. I want to learn how to kiss him, right? But eight years later, I've been told multiple times that I'm a fantastic kisser, and I've also used the same technique with some guys I've dated. Uh, you just kind of, in the moment of kissing, you make it a little bit flirtatious, like, hey, let's slow down. Let's do it a little more gently. How about a little less tongue? Smile, wink. It works. Hi, Dan. I just listened to the last podcast um, with the woman who is transported to Russia um, when she comes or right before she comes. And I just wanted to say that she's not the only one. I have similar experiences. I wanted to say that my experiences actually can be very, very boring. I've seen extremely boring fields or living rooms or things like that. And sometimes those are mixed with other things. Like it could be a living room with some trout, like swimming through a living room. I don't know. It's, it's, they're kind of strange. So anyway, the, this woman is not the only person who has that. I have something sort of similar. Sometimes right before I have an orgasm, my mind goes to a very specific and sort of a very specific place that kind of seems to come out of nowhere um, and, and are not sexual. The two most common sort of images or visions that I have are um, a bear <laughs> playing in a stream in the mountains trying to catch a fish. And the other one is a lot of children and families playing in a fire hydrant on a hot summer's day. When I'm approaching orgasms from oral sex, uh, I often see intersections, as in street intersections. These are not important or historical street intersections, just intersections like the northwest corner of the courthouse uh, in some city where I used to live or facing east in the historical district of downtown, that kind of thing. I don't feel like it makes me a more interesting person. Uh, in fact, these could hardly be more boring visions. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Salvage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Find out if Hump, my amateur porn festival, is coming to your city at humptour.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Molina Williams on Twitter at Molina. And follow Dr. David Lay on Twitter at Dr. Dr. David Lay. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.